0: Howdy folks, welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. I'm your host, Kirsten Nutz, and in today's episode, we'll dive into another world, the world of macro photography with one of the most recognizable names of the genre right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 164. But hold on, before I reveal this week's special guest, let me just say that I'm massively proud that our friends at Platypod have come on board to sponsor the Camera Shake Podcast. I honestly couldn't be more thrilled since I've been using Platypod products like the Platypod Extreme and the Platypod Elite and the brand new handle for some time now. And it's made my life so much easier. Platypod make the world's most compact tripods for photographers, filmmakers, and vloggers, allowing you to unlock limitless creativity and say goodbye to missed shots and restrictive rules with Platypod where innovation never sleeps. Incidentally, Platypod gear will come in incredibly handy if you are thinking about getting into macro photography too. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the incredibly talented macro legend, educator, author, the voice behind the Photo Geek Weekly podcast, and the only Canadian I know living in Bulgaria. Give it up for Don (laughs) Komarajka. Don, how you
1: doing? Thank you very much. Uh, it's, a, it's a great introduction. Uh, you know, it's it's fun because I, I've seen your name and I've listened to your podcast, and we kind of run in the same circles. But it was only recently um, that uh, we've ever actually connected. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, I've been
0: looking forward to this actually for for some time. You know, macro photography is is something that personally I've never attempted, but um, I see a lot of macro photography in the sort of you know in the camera club landscape. Um, and I've always been really fascinated by it. Um, but I've never really been able to get my head around how to actually do it well, which is why I'm super thrilled to have you on the show because I'm sure you can you can sort of pull back
1: the curtain, you know, um and reveal some of the secrets. There, there's a lot of I don't want to call them secrets because I don't keep them secret, but but there's a lot of techniques and tricks to to keep in mind that there's a, a big challenge. However, the first thing that you encounter with macro photography is uh, the closer you get to your subject, the shallower your depth of field will will uh, inherently be. And so most photographers know that aperture controls uh, how much depth of field you have. Some may uh, understand a bit more about how focal length plays an impact on uh, depth of field. But the the distance from your subject is one of those pivotal macro nuggets of knowledge that when, when you start getting closer and closer, you'll realize that your depth of field is like uh, razor thin. I mean, thinner than razor thin, depending on how close you get. And the conventional logic of well why don't i just shoot with a smaller aperture also plays problematically into this because then you encounter diffraction and diffraction makes all of your images blurry uh because well for lack of a full physics lesson, um, if light passes through an opening, it has a wave nature, just like water waves, and it will bend, uh, and the smaller the opening, the more it's gonna bend off course, and it's like coloring outside the lines. So light that should be hitting one pixel is now hitting that pixel and all of the adjacent ones, and that lowers your resolution. So um, there are challenges with macro photography, uh, and you kind of get slapped in the face with these because you don't experience that with uh, portrait photography or landscape photography, to the same degree. And that turns a lot of people off of the subject initially, because there's the inherent frustrations of not getting a good shot right away. Yeah, the scale of, especially,
0: uh, you know, the changes in depth of field are quite uh, quite distinct. I mean, as a portrait photographer, you know, I, I always battle with getting the eyes sharp, you know, and then I battle with, you know, getting sharpness from the tip of the nose to maybe you know, uh, the mask of the face and potentially to the back of the ears, you know, and that's what, that's what I call a shallow depth of field. But that's right. nothing
1: compared to the, the sort of scale we're talking about with macro photography. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and macro, let's start by saying that the term is really... Close up photography macro in other terms doesn't apply like macroeconomics is talking about big things. And in, in this uh, terminology, it means life size, which means that the image is going to appear on the sensor the same size as it is in reality. And that's a very, very narrow definition that is I mean, sure, some people are shooting with a macro lens that can get up to that point but if you dial the focus back a little bit is it technically macro well not by the definition so let's call it close-up photography just so that we don't get all of the people uh super technical about this writing in complaints But the idea is that uh, you can have a dedicated macro lens, but you don't need to have something that can focus that closely. You can use extension tubes, which, you know, they usually sell them in sets of three. Um, They're hollow. There's nothing inside these guys. All this does is push the lens further away from the focal plane. And if you could imagine back in the old timey days when uh, cameras had bellows, right, And so if you wanted to shoot a landscape, you would close those bellows off so that they'd be, you know, uh, compacted and your focusing would be near or at infinity. And if you wanted to shoot a portrait, you would push the lens further away from the film plane. And if you wanted to shoot macro, you'd go even further out. Uh, And so extension tubes, bit of a, another misnomer they don't actually extend your focus they shift the range so with these on your lens you can no longer focus to infinity but the closest uh focusing distance will be vastly improved and when i uh, when i encounter people getting into macro and just starting to play around with it and they say i've got extension tubes i don't know how to use them because if you put a whole set of these things on a, uh, just a a regular lens and you're expecting it to, with the exact same framing to magically get you closer to your subject, you might not have anything in focus in the frame at all. And if you put them on a lens that has too wide of a, um, a field of view, uh, for great example, I could put extension tubes, one of the small ones on a fisheye lens that I have and infinity focus becomes the front element. Like I can put my thumb and see my thumbprint on the lens itself. Um, that's how close the the shift is going to be on wider angle lenses. Uh, so there's a lot of experimentation with macro. But thankfully, some of the best equipment is actually the least expensive. You know, I um, I play around with a lot of different contraptions and gadgets with my photography. But um, the Lioa series lenses, um, Venus Optics makes uh, the Liowa brand, and they're, the majority of these lenses are all completely manual focus, manual apertures. But that's really the place where you want to be in the macro photographic space is kind of taking control of the scenario. And manual is not a detraction, especially when, hey, these lenses are great. The resolving power is amazing. The optical quality is there. And they're not that expensive to start to play with.
0: Well, that would have been my next question: is like, how well do things like autofocus work
1: in in that sort of Oh, market? it fails. Oh, I mean, it's it's a moving target, right? Autofocus is always getting better, uh, and and so on, but they're not training the subject detection algorithms to detect a butterfly or a bee. Uh And the depth of field is so shallow that if it misses the, say you want to get the stamens of of a small flower in focus, but it instead moves to the petals because it's a larger object within the frame, the the guessing from autofocus is not great. Uh, And sometimes your subject doesn't. exist in that space for more than a a microsecond, because it might be uh, splashing water droplets, or it might be, you know, uh, you've got a a camera trap set up so that a butterfly is coming into a flower and you're catching it in flight. And autofocus is not going to behave nicely in those scenarios.
0: So, um, I mean, apart from lenses and everything, it's uh, the one thing that's fascinated me uh, when it comes to, you know, macro photography is the whole idea of lighting your subjects.
1: Yeah, is- so th- there's, there's a number of ways for you to do this, but um, the first way that I tried and failed um, was to use natural light. Uh, and don't don't get me wrong, natural light has its place, but um, I was getting blurry images from motion blur, and I just couldn't get it to work no matter how high I cranked my ISO settings. But when I started to play around with uh, instantaneous low flashes, something clicked. And it started to work and kind of gel together a little bit better for me in terms of the concepts. But it really took off when I started using continuous light. And they make incredibly bright flashlights. You can get 4,000-plus lumen flashlights these days. Um, And they're often waterproof, and I'm often playing with water. So uh, those lights ended up being a dramatic improvement because I could see exactly how I was shaping things. And for a flashlight, you can put it at point blank range and get all of that light right on the subject. And uh, and so as silly as it is, um, yeah, just LED flashlights are pretty much the, the go to tool. I also have loom cubes uh, and they're they're nice because they're waterproof and they're shorter so I can get them into smaller places and they've got tripod mounts directly on them. Um, and uh, I actually you mentioned Platypod as a, a sponsor for this podcast. Uh, They uh, put together a DonCom macro bundle for me with a bunch of their gooseneck arms and loom cubes on a platypod extreme base with some of their uh, crab clamps as a really cool lighting and subject manipulation setup designed perfectly for macro photography. I'll make sure you have the link to that.
0: It's funny you mentioned uh, loom cubes in there and the goosenecks because I don't know if you probably, if you're watching this on YouTube, you probably won't be able to see it, but I just move in here. So, one light that's lighting me from the side is, in fact,
1: a Loom Cube ah, on, a, on a gooseneck
0: on a Platypod Ultra. There
1: you go. <laughs> you and I have a anything. gigantic light softbox up here that's revealing my sweltering face because it's 35 degrees <laughs> and I don't have the air conditioning on. So, I apologize for my complexion.
0: Yeah, I've been experimenting with lots of key lights. You know, I've, at the moment, um, I'm sort of favoring a beauty dish actually with a diffusion sock um, because it's. It's giving me a very similar light to a softbox, but the softbox is considerably deeper, you know, and, right. and just a bigger chunk of material than um, than this beauty, do- uh, beauty dish. So that's at the moment, that's where I'm at, just to keep everything really compact and nice and you know, small as possible, yet creating right. as large a light source as, as needed, you know.
1: Exactly. And, you know, lighting to different photographers is going to play out in different ways, right? Uh, I was surprised. And I've got ring lights and I use them for some things. I use them for my snowflake work uh, and for a lot of the run and gun insect photography where you want to totally freeze the action. Um, That is the necessary tool in that regard. Um, But for most of the studio um, constructive stuff that I do uh, and documentary film work on on the macro scale. Um, the, uh, Nightcore is a is company that I use a lot of flashlights from. They've got a, a wide range. Even the cheap ones from them don't have a flickering effect. So um, that's a, it's a good tool to look at. And of course, most beginners,
0: I, I assume, uh, would have at least one speed light or something like that, maybe a couple of speed
1: lights knocking about at home. Um, yeah. And the the, of- the thing with speed lights is same with using it in a studio. Uh, it's not a what you see is what you get environment. Uh, you don't know what the light is going to do until you've taken the picture. So you've got to kind of train your brain around that concept. Um, but it when was the last time I used my speed light? It was last year. So uh, it's just different, different ways of uh, putting things together. I've also used a tool that is uh, more and more common on cameras today. Canon just added this feature to the R5, I believe, is the ability to shoot in a high resolution mode, which takes multiple images and combines them together to create an image that is usually four to five times the resolution of the camera sensor. That was uh, about two years ago, three years ago, when I started playing around with the Lumix S1R that had that feature on it, fell in love with it. Because it was a way for me to overcome the shallow depth of field, threading the needle between, you know, diffraction uh, and depth of field. And you got to have the image quality, but you want to have the perfect amount of depth. And so what I've been doing lately to avoid the uh, often previously necessary task of focus stacking, which is where you take images at slightly different focus points and combine them together in order to extend that depth of field in software. If I have a 47-megapixel camera and I shoot in the high-res mode, it generates a 187-megapixel image. I don't care about 187 megapixels. That's superfluous. That's way more than anything that I'd ever practically have a use for. But what if I intentionally get further away from my subject? You know, The closer you get, the shallower your depth of field. So the inverse is also true. The further away I get, the greater my depth of field is going to be. And then if I can throw away 75% of my pixels, then I'm back down to 47 megapixels. I could throw away 90% and I'd still end up with a useful number of uh, of pixels on the, the final product. And so that has been a game changer for me. Images that used to require extensive focus stacking efforts, which there's dedicated software for it. I typically use Photoshop just to be really precise and do all the corrective work that I need. But... Uh, I don't have to do a lot of that anymore. Maybe I'll combine two or three images at the most. Unless, of course, I am going to the crazy extremes. Because once you start exploring macro photography, you want to get closer. You want to get as close as you can because your lens just can't see the cool details that you want. And so, um, Kristen, have you, uh, do, do you know of this lens? This is something of a legendary macro lens that I'm holding up here. Um, I don't think so. This is the Mm -hmm. Canon MPE 65 millimeter macro lens originally introduced in 1999, has been just recently discontinued, but... It is still a workhorse for me, and the thing about this lens is, you can often find them used, and they're not really used. They're like they've been used once, and somebody was so frustrated with their purchase, it stayed in their closet for you know two, three months before they tried again, and now it was too far away from the purchase date to uh, to return it. And so, a lot of these used guys that you find online uh, are so very lightly used. Not this one. Uh, this one is it's been through a lot. Um, it's, very, but, it's very, often the case with like specialist lenses. I
0: find, you know, they people buy them, they use them a few times, and they go, "Oh, that's too hard." Or, you know, yeah, they're not, tilt no, they're not shift lenses, and yeah, tilt exactly. lenses in
1: particular. Exactly. Um, but that lens, the Canon MPE, can go from one. Uh, one-to-one magnification, which is macro, to -to five-to-one magnification. And that helps you get into the range of filling the frame with a single water droplet or a snowflake or the eye of an insect. And, And that can be a truly fascinating world to explore. Again, more challenging as you get closer and closer until you decide to take out the big guns and start shooting with microscope objectives. And those guys go all the way up to 100 times or so. And this is an impossible task to handheld. Uh, handhold. You'd need to be on a tripod uh, with a focusing rail that would move the camera forward and backward as it passes through the focus, and often an automated one is the more useful way to do that. I did photograph some snowflakes with a 20 times microscope objective handheld once when I was brave and stupid, but uh, I'm not not going to do that again
0: we we are going to get to snowflakes um in this conversation i'm sure um at some point in more detail but uh, you know let me just say that you know looking through your imagery um this i've really been i mean almost every image i i looked at was so impressive you know it was either the detail in the snowflakes for example that you managed to capture um you know the the colors in some of the imagery are just mind-blowingly fascinating and uh, and I particularly like crystals. Like the work that you do around uh, around you know different types of crystals is just is really incredible.
1: Well, and and there's so much variation in in that, right? It, there, there's no way that you could really photograph the same subject in the same way. It, it's landscape photography um, is fun, but how many photographs of Horseshoe Bend do you need? Uh, or The Eiffel Tower or any Icelandic waterfall or but within the macro space, the subjects themselves simply have a fascination factor that compels you to constantly want to explore them. Some of the crystals, as you mentioned, um, I try to get specimens that fluoresce under ultraviolet light and I can do that with plants, too. It's a completely transformative way of, of viewing the world. And just in a dark room with a, an ultraviolet LED flashlight making these things glow feels like the imagery is on a different planet. It's fun. And it's also, it's a completely different world. Um,
0: I think, you know, the macro world it just, you know, it remains hidden from, from the naked eye usually because we perceive the world like we humans would normally do. And of course, that's useful to us as humans. But on that small scale, it is literally like, I feel it's like like being Ant-Man and all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) being shrunk down to like, you know, to experiencing, um, you know, the world around you in a completely new light. And I think that's really where the fascination is. That's At least that's the thing that's always fascinated me
1: about macro photography. And you have the ability to control things too. You know, yes, it's often nature uh, in, in a macro space that you're photographing. Not always, but... Um, you have the ability to carefully place water droplets and then put a flower in behind and have the flower refract through the water droplet as it's functioning like a little crystal ball, like like a lens. And you can create these constructs that, yes, you're not photographing nature as nature exists, but, you know, freezing soap bubbles are just so darn cool. Um, and, you know, you can create your own subjects. And stage things and and build this sort of fantasy storytelling environment around you. Like behind me, I've got uh, a formicarium that has uh, a semi-venomous ant from Australia, um, Queen, and I'm trying to start a colony. And uh, it's a green-headed ant and it's got this cool iridescent uh, uh, outer shell and i just thought it would be really a fun experiment to say okay let's start the colony and then occasionally try to do some staged setups uh with uh, with that as a as a live actor which i've used many times before and i can consider that a pet so call that pet photography um if you so wish but you know you have this inherent ability to put yourself into the work and uh, yeah, you can do that with portraiture, sure, hundred um, percent. But you usually don't have that opportunity with the natural world. But macro photography, if you choose to embrace it, it's there for you. I, I can see an
0: amalgamation of Kaylee Greer's dog photography with Australian ants. I thought it'd be amazing. Well, and, so and if that time. if
1: that ant colony doesn't take off, I've got carpenter ants in a jar on my on my studio table. How did you get uh, How
0: did you get hold of an Australian ant?
1: Uh, yeah, no comment. <laughs> phenomenal um does it have a does it have a name uh not yet i was going to give the colony a a name once it was established um but i i saw her running around a couple of days ago i try not to disturb uh what's going on in there it's a semi-claustral ant species for anybody that's not familiar with ants some of them uh have bigger bodies and wings that they clip off and they no longer need the wing muscles for anything. So they basically dissolve that protein to feed the starting of a colony. Whereas semi-colostral ants uh, do not have those strong wing muscles and need to be forging around to try to find protein uh, for uh, their larva. Nobody wants to hear about ants on this podcast, but there you go. <laughs> I don't know. It's just always, you know, always expect the unexpected on this podcast, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, photographing, one of the most fascinating things to photograph, uh, actually, I find, is is insects. You know, it's just such a, like, everybody knows what a bee looks like or a wasp or
1: something like that. But, but you then know, you get closer and yeah. you, can, you can almost anthropomorphize them. I mean, you see their little hands and they feel like they're actually little hands and you can see like, oh, does it actually have what looks like fingers? I think it might have fingers. Yeah. Uh, and then it just brings an entirely new appreciation for that subject. And I've often gone out, photographed some cool looking bug and... And then I've gotten home and thinking, okay, I need to learn about this. I need to figure out what this creature was. And uh, if I'm going to be posting the image online, I'm going to share details about it. And it, it's a, an exploratory process that kind of goes beyond the photography. It kind of reconnects you with this natural world. And I'm by no means an entomologist as a result of this, but it's just, again, it's that fascination factor that keeps me going back. That's something that i found really, um, you know, amazing, you know,
0: when I, I remember speaking to Moose Peterson, for example, uh, you know, wildlife photographer, and uh, his knowledge of the of the natural world is just is phenomenal. You know, that's basically through photographing it, you know. Um, And so it gives you
1: the inspiration to to learn. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when it comes to insects, how do you actually I mean, how do you actually practically photograph an insect? I, I mean, I'm guessing these insects are alive when you photograph them.
1: Well, I mean not always. Um, I've photographed um you know at 20 or 50 times magnification uh butterfly wings and those are specimens that that are dead and and they're uh, purchased for for the purposes of of studying uh, or displaying in a box, I guess is what they're usually for. They don't expect the person they're selling it to to stick a microscope objective up against it but um, so for those and any really high magnification, um, you're probably gonna be dealing with a dead bug. I remember at one point uh, there was a, a horsefly or a deer fly that had landed on my neck and was he, he he picked the fight. And then I I swat at the back of my neck and I hold up my hand and now I have a very cooperative subject uh to work with. Sometimes um people have uh you know put bugs in the fridge or the freezer to slow them down. I typically don't do that. I I find that that's kind of breaking the rules, going a little bit too far uh, into, uh, you know, possibly doing harm to another living creature. So, um, and and I will admit that I've done it once, but um, I decided afterwards, once you cross that limit, you know where you should probably stay. And for me, it's on the other side of that. Um, But when you're out in nature and the bugs are alive and they're moving and the the sun is beaten down and and there's a lot of uh, live uh, activity your keeper ratio of of images is about one out of every 100. Um, Maybe one out of every 300, depending on what you're trying to photograph. And so that means not exactly a spray and pray mentality, but what I would consider... um, you have to keep your finger on the shutter button as you move forward and backward, passing that focal plane through the subject. And that's how you generally uh, appreciate the insects is by following them around um, and moving the camera. Rather than adjusting the focus or depending on autofocus, you physically move the entire camera and lens combo to shift your focus around. Uh, And and I do that not just for insects, but uh, for water droplets or anything where I'm dynamically hand-holding the camera
0: so i always i always wondered that actually i wondered whether you know you
1: set up a trap like you know a, a light trap or whatever type of trap oh some people have uh, I've, yeah. I've seen really elaborate setups for everything from tiny hummingbirds and moths to do exactly what you're describing i've never done that there used to be a company and i
0: I'm sure i'll remember at some point what they were called um unfortunately they went bust it was one of these um you know kickstarter type companies and they they specialized in making also different types of traps, everything from like laser guided like light traps to um, sound traps, um, and a lot of it worked through your mobile phone. So it would use the microphone in your in your cell phone
1: as a you know as a trigger. Oh, trigger trap. Yeah. That's what they are called. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh yes, trigger trap. And uh, they they went out of business because they um, they were going to do a a further update to a a, a more advanced. Uh, a device that was kind of a standalone and they mistakenly used the word red in the name and red cameras, uh, you know, threatened to sue them Uh, and they may have had to pay something for that. I'm not sure. Um, Haya, the guy behind the company, I did an interview on uh, an episode of Inside the Lens uh, a long time ago, and it's still up there. So if anybody wants to check out my very specific, uh, you know, deep dive podcast of Inside the Lens, uh, there's a discussion about the history of Trigger Trap there.
0: Yeah, Trigger Trap was a very interesting, uh, interesting company. I remember um, using some sound traps to create uh, images of what was it? It was um, it was rubber ducks falling into. Baths of water. That's what it was.
1: Yeah. And it worked really rather well. Yeah. I, I had one as well. Um, yeah. Too bad that they, they're no longer in existence.
0: Yeah. It was some really, uh, really useful things. I, I did actually, I did flood my kitchen though. Um, that was hilarious. <laughs> I think my, at the time, my flatmate, like my roommate came in at about so, one o'clock in the morning and there was in the pitch black, you know, <laughs> uh, with a number of speed lights around this this little water basin thing. And, uh, and you yeah, know, it was about, probably about, I'd say, a good, five to seven centimeters of water on the kitchen floor <laughs> by that time. You're but a did, horrible person. I know, I did get a killer, <laughs> shot, a killer shot though. So <laughs> the keeper ratio was
1: uh, very low <laughs> that particular day. Well, and they do have all sorts of uh, triggers. I had one that would uh, allow you to cause water droplets to collide together so one would drop down into a pool of water, but then a little bit of it would splash back up at just the right time for a droplet to be falling down, and they would uh, splash apart, create some really cool, dramatic images. Um, so yeah, with the automation in terms of those little gadgets and and gizmos, there's a lot that could be done with macro.
0: So I mentioned um, I mentioned the the, so the the colorfulness of your of your imagery. Um, how do you achieve that? Do you achieve that in camera or is that like a post-production thing?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that post-production has much to do with color. I mean, I might adjust things a little bit as anybody does with any image that they take. But the, the colors, you know, especially with the water droplet work, you can buy incredibly vibrant flowers. And um, Gerbera daisies are my favorite, and they can come in some very intense reds and oranges. Uh, but the, the thing with with the macro space is, That flower, if I place that behind water droplets, as one example, it becomes the background that's out of focus. And so you get this massive wash of red that can slowly transition into, say, green or yellow because that's the center of the flower that has a different color. And so the background becomes whatever you place there. And because you are... Effectively manufacturing the shot in terms of how it's all staged, you get to choose, you know, from the florist what your color palettes are going to be for that shoot. Um, Even when I'm shooting in nature, there's a lot of techniques where uh, you can, because that depth of field, again, is so shallow you can put flowers out of focus in the background that just becomes just blotches of color or in the foreground as well that would become out of focus that kind of bleeds into your subject. And so framing and choosing your subject is is really where that color comes from. I guess I just like color and it's available. I mean as a portrait photographer you get to choose or potentially get to choose the the dress that your model is wearing. And uh and so then are, are you feeling colorful that day then choose red uh if not well i don't know black if you're sad so uh I, it's it really just boils down to your mood and, and what your preferences are uh, it's not always the case my snowflakes are rather monochromatic most of the time
0: i remember a shot that i saw of yours um that was uh, i think it was a an array of of diamonds with different types of impurities in them, and i think you shot it, if i remember correctly but correct me if i'm wrong I think you shot that under uh, UV light. That's and, right. And what I what I found really mind blowing was how these different impurities um, affected the color of each of each diamond. It was it was incredible. When because I think I remember I remember you showing like a um a bit sort of almost like a before and after kind of shot.
1: You know, a shot regular taken light and ultraviolet. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And it's just it's just uh, what really struck me was really the creativity in 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 the way of
1: thinking in order to achieve that. And that uh, that was a tricky shot to set up because I was I was only shooting it at around three times magnification, which might sound like a lot to some. But these these are diamonds, and they're very small; they're the size of grains of sand. And you can buy them on eBay from directly from the mines in Pakistan or India um, for I don't know twenty to forty dollars for a package of like two hundred of them. And uh, because they're rough, impure diamonds that have their natural. Um, is it octahedron structure two pyramids kind of stacked on top of each other um because you know you've got that natural look to them on such a small scale uh they become fascinating and i remember when i shot that image i had a lot of people saying don i i can't afford to play with diamonds but really yes you can um Two hours was the setup time for that shot, uh, mostly just using tweezers to get the proper diamonds in in a row to make sure that they are all perfectly in a row with the spacing even uh, amongst them so that I didn't have to do any Photoshop trickery to balance that all out. Um, and then, you know, like you sneeze or you hiccup and you lose one and you're never going to find that one again. So, uh, you yeah, know, welcome to my nightmare.
0: <laughs> it's amazing because, you know, you'd think like, oh, well, you know, the difficult uh, part would be, I don't know, to, you know, maybe it would have to do with lighting or, you know, the camera setup, but it's, it's simply actually just getting these diamonds in, in a
1: line. Yep. Yeah. And then I used, uh, I, I believe it was a platypod gooseneck arms and crab clamps to hold four ultraviolet flashlights all at c- as close to point, point blank range as I could, uh, so that they, they might've even been in the frame before cropping, but you want them really right on top of your subject the inverse square law applies here you know the closer you can get the lights the more fluorescence you're going to get even if it's just a little bit closer at those distances it makes a big difference
0: if we just stick with light for a minute um i had a conversation with troy miller um only a little while ago about um infrared photography and of course right troy troy specialized in landscapes um for the most part and um i was really fascinated by by his use of of infrared light and you know, the way he modifies his cameras to to see the infrared light and so on. And, and th- really the, uh, the end results that he gets. Um, wh- what are the effects of UV light on the subject and how do you use
1: that? So here's the thing. Um, when you're shooting in ultraviolet fluorescence, you're capturing visible light. So what happens is the ultraviolet light is higher energy, shorter wavelength light that hits the, the subject. And if the subject can fluoresce, then the atoms in that subject get excited, or rather the electrons in those atoms get excited, and they go to a slightly higher orbit. But they don't stay there for very long. In fact, it's pretty much instantaneously. It's measured in femtoseconds that they shrink back down to their original orbit and give off that energy again. But You've lost something in that process. You can't have the same amount of energy once you've used a bit of it to do this little uh, expansion and contraction, and so the uh, the atom gives off light of lesser energy, oftentimes into the visible spectrum, and so that's why we call it ultraviolet-induced visible fluorescence (UVIVF). Now, this is an important distinction because it means if you want to photograph a glowing subject under an ultraviolet light you don't need any special filters you don't need any modifications to your camera you don't need any special lenses it's just your regular gear just diminish the amount of ambient light around you because that would contaminate the the image otherwise but it's just plain regular light nothing special just the ultraviolet flashlight is, is what you need There is a different type of ultraviolet photography that people think of, and it's the direct observation of the ultraviolet light because there are patterns in flowers that insects can see and possibly other pollinators. Uh, Sunflowers have a big dark bullseye right in the center of it. Uh, There's like what appears to be like, uh, you know, airport running light strips in other flowers to guide the insect into where the pollen is. And you can photograph that but you need special lenses, expensive filters, and a camera modified for full-spectrum photography in addition to the ultraviolet light source. I don't recommend it. I'm still trying to find uh, a knockout shot with all of that gear that is just artistically beautiful. I'm not there yet. It's really hard and not that rewarding from the scientific perspective. Uh, if you're going to be modifying your camera, play with the play in the infrared space like Troy does. It's far more uh, interesting than, than the ultraviolet
0: and yet i think the ultraviolet spectrum is um you know again because it's because we're looking at the known world but it just displays in a completely different unknown way you know that's that's the
1: interesting thing about it and even you know, even on a macro scale if we just talk about uh, the the infrared for a second insects often absorb uh infrared light because they want the heat right because they're cold blooded but flowers and a lot of foliage reflect it all and so you can create some really high contrast yet still ghostly looking images on that side of things. And you've got between 700 nanometers and a thousand nanometers uh, of, of light that is in the infrared that the average camera sensor can detect. And on the other side of it, in the ultraviolet, you've got between 400 nanometers uh and 300 you got about 100 nanometers worth of light that uh, a regular cmos sensor can can detect Uh, and that means you can also do if you're playing in that space that really hard to do space You can also do false color ultraviolet um but again it's really sciencey and uh i haven't found too much The, the fluorescence is where it's at that's where all of my hits come from tell me a
0: little bit about your um about the use of crystal photography because i i listened to you explain that uh in in one of your uh one of your videos and uh i find i uh, really that completely boggled my mind how did you first come up with that how did you get into that crystals referring to snowflakes or something else um crystals um uh, referring to uh, crystallized
1: um substances Oh, like a, yes, yes. The the cross polarization of, yes. of crystals. Yes. So, so this is such a fun idea. I, I didn't obviously come up with this. Uh, there's almost nothing new under the sun when it comes to creative ideas. Uh, but it's a really easy thing to do. And everybody can feel like an abstract artist to do this. All you need is a piece of glass and some household ingredients. You might have citric acid as part of your uh, kitchen cupboard inventory. It's used as a preservative, um, but you can easily get that on Amazon. It's one of the best for this. Just take it, dissolve a whole bunch of it in water until a small amount of water doesn't dissolve any more of it. So that's completely saturated within the solution. And with a little pipette or a, a spoon, just put it on the glass and wait for it to evaporate. And as the water evaporates, then the uh, the citric acid passes past the 100% uh, solubility and starts to deposit itself as crystals around the edges of this piece of glass. I use microscope slides, but you can use whatever you'd like. There's an old picture frame hanging around in a closet because you can't be bothered to go and find microscope slides. You can use that and then clean it off afterwards. Works just fine. Um, But the idea with creating these crystals is not just, oh, okay, well, now I've got some crystals, hooray, Um, is that many crystals muck with the direction, the polarization direction of light. And so when you have two polarizers in opposition to one another, this is how a variable neutral density filter works. It turns dark or almost completely dark. Um, But if you have those apart and you put something in between them and that something changes the polarity of the light then you'll see nothing except those changes. And I won't get into the physics lesson of how light does this impossible corkscrew through some of these subjects to to come out the other side in a different direction. But the point is, practically, we can use that as an artistic effect. And um, citric acid is one, menthol crystals is another. Um, You know, go to the... The random health food websites that sell you all of the different amino acids and what have you and buy a bunch of them and see what their crystal structure does. Floor cleaner can often create interesting crystals. Um, Whatever that additive that they add to diesel cars, I think that one makes nice crystals too, although I haven't had a chance to try it.
0: What's it called? at Blue or something. Is that the one?
1: Yes, yes. But it had like the chemical name itself, uh, I think is it it doesn't matter. Um, Experiment. Some things will work, some things won't. Uh, and it's even like um, I've got a little crystal growing kit and I got my daughter for her birthday and she's expecting these purple gems to to grow, but it's so humid right now, the water's not evaporating. So maybe that would be a better experiment to do uh, either in a very air-conditioned space, which I am currently not in, uh, or during the winter time. So with, you know... Looking across your portfolio, you know, with snowflakes, crystals,
0: diamonds, um, insects and so forth, what's, what's your, what is like
1: your, your all time favorite subject to photograph? The one that I'll photograph tomorrow. I mean, like it's, you bounce around with these ideas so frequently and, uh, I would say trying to juxtapose organic and inorganic subjects, you know, getting some crystal that fluoresces to mix that in to a uh, you know a natural environment. and uh, and I've got some ideas for that that I really want to explore. And so that's what's on my mind when I think about, you know what what I like the most is the one that's actually rattling around in my head that I'm trying to figure out what it's going to be. And that changes based on the seasons.
0: i've seen i've seen some of your landscape photography which is equally phenomenal um but how did you first get into macro photography what was the
1: thing that basically said to you well i want to deep dive into that uh well i bought the canon mpe 65 millimeter lens and uh just about threw it out uh for the reasons i gave earlier high magnification macro is hard but then i picked up a ring flash And I was, I just took it to work that day. I was working at an advertising agency at the time. That's my educational background. And um, it was, I knew it was going to be a slow day. They were having me do organizational flow charts and stuff. And so I just brought the new toy. It was around Christmas time. And you'd be amazed at what corkboard looks like it's organic, the tip of a ballpoint pen or a bunch of staples uh, all together office supplies can be fascinating to a bored macro photographer. Um, But I just wanted to explore that small space. And that day it started snowing. And I went outside and tried to photograph a snowflake, but it was white on white. And so it didn't really have a lot of contrast. Um, And I thought, okay, how can I play my hand at, at making this a bit more dynamic? And my grandmother had knit me and all of her grandchildren some black mittens to keep in our car in case we're on a lonely stretch of road and the car dies and uh, we need to make sure that we are uh, kept warm and safe. Thank you, grandma. So I had those mittens in my car and I went and I took one out and uh, let the snow fall on it. And that has been the background behind every single one of my snowflake photographs to this date is my grandmother's homemade mitten and that was really the start of macro photography for me in that moment it uh, it took off i never looked back
0: how do you find uh, interesting subjects to shoot now 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 that you know so many years later um do you still do you endeavor to find new things to
1: photograph uh yeah i mean I, th- there's basically four or five streams of, of primary subjects right there there's insects there's water droplets there's snowflakes, there's the extreme magnification science stuff, and the ultraviolet. Beyond that, it's like everything would kind of be slotted into one of those categories, but there's still so much to explore, especially on the high magnification level. Um, I've got a colleague that provides me occasionally with micrometeorites that measure between a half and a third of a centimeter or a millimeter in, in diameter. So imagine... A tiny little speck you could barely even see it yet it's from outer space and uh how could you play with that in an interesting way and i always come up with new um concepts to you know say how how far can you push the science of this or um at the beginning of 2022 i did a series an ongoing series in support of ukraine uh much of which i published into the public domain um, and uh, and raised money for the refugees that were coming here in bulgaria so you know, it's hard to say what I'm going to do next and uh, and where that's going to go, but it's always an adventure.
0: Um, well, you're uh, as you mentioned, you're you're currently in Bulgaria. Are you are you
1: living in Bulgaria permanently? Yeah, yeah. We moved here in October of 2021, and uh, my wife is originally from Bulgaria. Even though she had spent half of her life in Canada, and uh, and for me, we had visited Bulgaria many times, and it was one of those things where you know talking possibly about retiring out here. But then the pandemic hit and I was working remotely from home and everything was fine. I could work remotely. Life was good. So remotely, I can work from anywhere on the planet. And uh, cost of living being lower here, taxes being lower here, uh, being able to, you know, buy a property and hopefully be debt free in our 30s, we're not there yet, but um, that's something that we would have never been able to achieve uh, in Canada. Just everything is going through the roof. So uh, yes, Bulgaria is home. Uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to apply for citizenship next year. If I could pass the test, though, because it's in Bulgarian, and that language is one of the hardest to learn. <laughs> yeah, Duolingo. Um, you
0: know, I'm working very hard on my Swedish at the moment. But, you know, yeah, I
1: I got an app for it. Maybe I'll have to take some formal lessons at some point. Uh, I'll get there. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, For anybody who is thinking about
0: experimenting with macro photography, and I, you know, I count myself among them, actually, uh, what would be your,
1: your, your, your number one starter tip? Don't give up. And that's really everybody is going to uh, encounter frustrations. You know, when I would teach water droplet refraction workshops, I promise everybody frustration, you know, that that's a guarantee that I can give you is you will be frustrated as you explore the subject, but you must then revel in your mistakes, right? That the mistakes are not something that are standing in the way of you creating the masterpiece. They are stepping stones and every one of them is a creative junction that will lead you on to the next attempt and the next what if question that you're going to ask. uh, And to carry that forward as the process and understand that I, in my work, fail every time I try something new. It's, uh, and I will fail multiple times. And sometimes I'll put the camera down and go back to the drawing board, go for a walk and think about the problem and come up with a new solution. And then that new solution also does not work. Um, this is part of the experience in macro photography and it is not to be avoided.
0: And of course, there's always a keeper rate, as you mentioned earlier, you know, if the keeper rate is one out of, out of a hundred, then you've literally failed 99 times, you know, on the,
1: on the lead up to that. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And it's really not so, different. It's not different for, uh,
1: from like portrait photography, for example. You know, it's, it's a similar thing. Um, well, it's actually, it, it's better in a way um, because in portrait photography, if you're making mistakes, you've got somebody standing there posing and you're like, oh, is this guy done yet? Um, well, I got to do this again. But uh, the ants don't talk back. <laughs> they might be thinking the same thing. Oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know? Um I mean, obviously microphotography requires, you know, patience and attention to detail. Um how do you uh, um what I'm trying to say, how do you maintain that sort of focus over an extended period of time? Huh. Define focus. Like I'm thinking like for instance, you know, if you're um if you're for instance, if you're photographing water droplets, you know, um the this, this sort of uh, you know you you can exact I mean you're going to have to photograph that. Dro- that droplet isn't going to exist for a very long period of time. You're going to It'll to, be you're actively
1: understand. evaporating. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the the setups, you have to work quickly. Uh, snowflakes will sublimate uh, as soon as they leave the cloud that they, uh, that they formed in. So even on the way down, they're sublimating. They're going from a solid back to gas and disappearing back into thin air before they even hit the ground. Um, So, you know, but by that same virtue, um, if you do have a transient temporary subject, then the idea is flash. Uh, I use a ring flash for the snowflakes, I use an off camera flash uh, for the water droplets if I had to. um, But You'd be surprised as to how static things are when you can get your shutter speed up to 1/1000th one one of a second. Um they they aren't going to be moving too terribly much. It's like bird photography, I suppose, in that same regard.
0: What strikes me especially with your photography is, you know, that that although we're looking at really tiny things, there's this really, you know, there's a lot of artistic expression um in those images. How do you balance that like
1: you know the technical proficiency and the artistic expression? I think photography is a mix of science and art, isn't it? Right, like you got the science on one side—you got to understand the diffraction and and uh, and, and the way the camera is going to function—and on the other side, uh, color theory and composition and and all of those two different things. And I think that they are mutually distinct, separate disciplines. And a lot of people. Focus so much on the technicality of photography, including macro photography, and and they can make a technically perfect image. I, I think this is what I apply with a lot of the the snowflake work. It's technically perfect. I'm not putting any of my own effort aside from a black mitten into the into the mix. But on the other side of the equation, with the you know insects and droplets and flowers and uh, the ultraviolet, you you have to understand where your eyes are going to read in an image and how valuable spirals and and diagonal lines can be in a composition. And I've gone so far as to purchase different plants at the garden stores because I suspect they would perform well in a fluorescent scenario uh, or because that passion flower vine had this really cool spiral tendril on it. And I'm going to buy that whole plant to take it home to photograph something along that spiral because I know spirals are cool. Um, And so it's a different mindset when, when you're trying to think about, yes, okay, you've got the technical skills. Good. Go out in the world and now find a subject that is worthy of being showcased with the technical proficiency that you may have already established. And that search for a subject, I think, is the real key. Uh, and sometimes it's not going to be anywhere local, uh, like coming up in about a month. Uh, one of my images is going to be featured on a United States postage stamp. And it is a Madagascan sunset moth wing that I you know, purchased online from a seller in Germany that sold me a moth from Madagascar that's going to be on a United States stamp by a Canadian artist. You know, the world is your playground when it comes to what you can get and where it's going to play it.
0: In fact, um, am I right in thinking that some of your images are also on some Canadian coins? Is that right?
1: Yes. $20, uh, $20 uh, pure silver limited edition coins, not circulation. Uh, and so you'd be foolish to actually spend them because it would cost you more than the face value of the coin to do so. Uh, but yes, I am on currency. <laughs> Fantastic. not my face personally but my my work <laughs> um i mean it's uh you know
0: just coming back to to technical uh proficiencies uh, the way i look at it uh, generally uh, when it comes to photography is that i look at it as a spectrum you know you've got on one end of the spectrum you've got the creative side of photography and on the other side of the spectrum it's it's the technical side of it and i always think like you know um every photographer fits somewhere on this on the spectrum some people are super technical but maybe lack on the creative side other people right. are super creative but don't really want to have anything to do with anything technical whatsoever and um it always strikes me that you know macro photography is when it's done really well is sort of where where all that meets in the middle you know it's this this sort of it is know.
1: uh like i said it's a mesh and i think the deeper you can weave those two um uh, I guess, expertise together, then the more magical the outcome is going to be, right? If you don't have the technical uh, chops for macro photography, it's fine. Your work will still be okay. If you uh, don't have the creative side of things, you can still do good work. But I think there's a synergistic uh, relationship when they're combined together. And, you know, I I feel like um, this type of magic that is in macro photography is only magical because it's real right like i often take behind the scenes images or images in different lighting conditions to reveal what it is that i'm actually shooting and to showcase people those behind the scenes or additional images in order to illustrate the process of how it was created and once people understand that this is not some AI trickery, that this is an actual real thing that I, you know, I created or I photographed or I found out in the, in the wild and here's the camera setup that makes the, uh, the appreciation for the end result that much more important. And and I feel like as photographers, we need to be transparent about the process as, as clearly as we can, and it will only add value to our work.
0: It's also one of those things where I think, you know, in, in photography is one of these, um, disciplines, just like, I think, just like painting, for example, where mm-hmm. you really have to love the process. You know, yeah. if, if you don't love the process of, of creating the image or the end result, then then there's almost no point because otherwise you're just torturing yourself through that. You know, and
1: I, I find that with a yeah. lot of things in photography, I just uh, absolutely love the process, you know, and my, um, my wife is, a, is an abstract painter and she's studying for her uh, master's in fine arts right now. And it's, it's amazing to see what she can do with a brush and a canvas and oil paints. She actually is annoyed by my cross-polarized crystals artwork because uh, some of those images, it would take her like a month of painting to come up with something as elaborate and as beautiful. And I just let stuff dry out on the kitchen table. And, uh, and it turns into this beautiful piece. Um, so uh, you know what? But it is. It is an art form. Are there any specific photographers whose work have um sort of inspired or influenced your work yeah absolutely um and and it's hard to say uh you know concretely oh this image from this one person uh but the ethos of some uh some photographers and uh um, alexey kleotov comes to mind he's a snowflake photographer in russia and uh uh, he actually, uh, during the conflict in Ukraine, flipped his um, Fine Art America payments uh, over to me as donations for the Ukrainians, and so good guy, Alexey, and so we've worked together. But he's started with uh, like using wood and duct tape to tape a macro lens onto a point and shoot camera in order to photograph snowflakes, and that inventive attitude and spirit—it was inspiring because. I have since used a lot, not duct tape, gaffer's tape, got big rolls of gaffer's tape. I have put things together just because I wanted to see what would happen. And the only way that I'm able to do that is because I've been inspired by others to do it. Um, Biggest inspiration, I think, though, in terms of photographers was my father. Um, He, when he was in high school, he wanted to be a, a photographer, but his parents said no. You know, you're going to go and get a respectable, stable job uh, and raise a family, and he did. And he ended up uh, becoming a, an electrical engineer and installed uh, mining communication equipment all around the world, uh, and took his camera with him because you, you know, have to go to some uh, mine in South Africa and you go on a safari wow. or whatever it is for a brief period of time, and and so he was always into photography, but. He was getting sick um and he's he's passed away now. He died at the young age of forty five. but when he was getting uh quite sick, he gave me an envelope with uh, with money in it and said that that you know, he, here's a living will. I want to see you enjoy something while I still can. And having no interest in photography at that time, my parents were divorced and my dad was somewhat estranged. I went out and I bought a camera uh canon uh, Canon Rebel XTI was the first one. And he taught me a lot about you know photography and the psychology of portraiture and and I started teaching him about uh, you know digital workflows and raw file processing and all of this and it was it was good uh, we were able to, to reconnect over photography uh, before the end so if there's any one influencer of my work it would be him wouldn't that's, exist without it that's
0: that's that's amazing because your story is is really not too dissimilar from my own story in that respect you know my my dad uh, died at uh, age of 54 um also very young and um my my dad and my grandmother were photographers um and you know and and i although i really i went into video and uh, filmmaking and stuff like that when i was a teenager i then had a career in music and um when my dad passed away in 2013 um I got to the point where I had to make life changes because 2013 was, which is one of these years. You know, my dad passed away, uh, my uh, my grandmother and my granddad passed away, and my relationship split up, and everything happened within like the space of nine months. And so when it rains, it pours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so it it felt like my whole life imploded. And I I went back to hang out with my mom who lives in the south of Germany um, just to get my head back together. And actually, and she said to me, I think you should. You know, I think you should get yourself a camera because that worked for you. your grandmother, worked for your dad. And, you know, I have a feeling that it might work for you. And that's what I did. And so I went out and I bought a camera and and that was it. And I haven't looked back since. And it sort of connected all the dots, you know, it connected everything that happened there all through my childhood because, you know, I grew up surrounded by cameras and film and, you know, and everything else. And uh, and And, yeah, everything just came back full circle at that point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. you know, It's, it's amazing how photography can be an element of therapy and personal growth. Uh, yeah. you know, but when, I, when I think about the earliest days of taking those pictures, um, you know, I had one or two mild successes, you know, I put a tree frog in a cedar tree and that kind of turned into something neat. Um, and, and I just kind of looked at those moments and I thought, okay, that that's, there's a good one there. There's another one here, but It only truly uh, became a a point of personal inspiration when I started to use photography as a way to learn about the world around. Like I was talking about looking up what kind of bug that is. But it's more than that. It's, you know, I've gone into the Yukon wilderness, uh, you know, with a group of hunters. And uh, my uncle was one of them. And I was invited along for a couple of weeks and i obviously was shooting with the camera not with a gun uh i mean not that i have anything against that in fact i'd rather eat uh a, a moose steak that was caught in the uh in the wild rather than a beef steak at the grocery store but that's another discussion the point is um i i was there on this trip for photos and i got them i got some great aurora shots uh, you know great wildlife and and so on um had i come home and realize that all the memory cards were wiped out and I lost all of the photos from that trip, I would still be a better person for having gone to try and take those photos and I would have new memories and experiences as a result. So often photography is the catalyst that sends me on an adventure. And I think that's just great. And if the memory cards don't work out or if I don't get a picture, I still had an adventure out of it yeah and an experience you know and it's, exactly. like you say it's, it just helps
0: you to grow as a as a human um i've always loved photography for that um in fact you know i've i've really i found that photography has helped me to kind of come out of my shell a little bit um you know although i spent 25 years you know performing on stages and everything um i i i love the way that because i'm a portrait photographer i photograph people and mm-hmm. uh and it's it's really helped me to connect with other human beings music for me has always been something that helped me withdraw from people <laughs> you know right because i you know because uh again i'm i'm fascinated with the process always and that's the thing i've always loved i've always loved the process of making music making photographs you know creating little short films and everything um and it's it's easy to uh become a bit of a recluse you know for, for me I spent spend a lot of time in the studio and that's, I used to love it. That was the thing, you know, lock me in the room, you know, with, uh, with a tape machine and three days later you come out with a, with a finished piece of music, which is amazing. Um, yeah, but for me, I, it's, yeah. it's
1: much the same in photography. I mean, I, I don't have any musical uh, inclinations whatsoever. Uh, so I can't relate on, on that particular art form, but when I can be left to my own devices and I'm just kind of hanging out here in my studio saying, Oh damn it, that didn't work. Okay. Uh, let's try this. And three hours go by. I've completely lost track of time and the the sun has set and I'm still tinkering away. And eventually I'll go to sleep that night. Somehow in my dreams, I find the solution to the problem. And then I go back and I start tinkering away in isolation, uh, just on my own. Nobody can complain to me except for the ants. And um, uh, and I, I love that. There's something, I don't know, peaceful about it. Yeah, very much so. It's 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 a great it's great for the mind. I think for
0: the soul even. Exactly. Fantastic. Um, I just want to one final thing. Um, I want to ask you. Um, you know, we talked about lots of equipment um, and things, and I think we started this conversation um, by you uh, demonstrating some extension um, tubes for uh for lenses. So, what I want to ask you is if, for anybody wanting to get into microphotography photography and not necessarily being able to spend you know thousands of dollars or pounds or whatever you're. Currency is, yes. um, on on brand new equipment. What's the easiest,
1: quickest way to to get into that form of photography? Uh, well, quickest and cheapest is to put your lens on backwards. Um, that, uh, you know, a 50 millimeter lens, if you reverse mount it, which would require to buy just a, it's a, it's a reversal adapter. You can type into eBay, the filter thread size of your lens, say 58 millimeters, um, Canon RF mount, and you'll be able to get a little adapter that lets you put the lens on backwards. Um, now controlling the aperture and all that stuff on a modern lens is not exactly easy, but that's okay because a lot of vintage lenses are completely mechanical and you can have some fun with that. Um, a 50 millimeter lens gets about one to one magnification. A 24 millimeter lens gets you around two to one magnification. So the wider you go in that regard, the more magnification you're going to get. It's not ideal though. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it's easy. So if you do want to spend at least, you know more than 10 dollars on something a set of extension tubes are what you want now don't be a fool like me and buy the canon ones if you're a canon shooter it's useless um the kenko ones or any other third party brands as so long as it's got decently favorable reviews um there's no optics involved in this it's just going to pass the electrical uh, electrical signal from the lens and if other people like it it, unless it completely falls apart on you, the quality doesn't really matter uh, to that end. So extension tubes, you can get them cheap in the double digits, and that would allow you to take any, you know, say like a 24 to 105 millimeter kit lens that you might already have on your camera, boom, macro lens in uh, uh, in your hands with just a set of these guys. There you have it, folks. It's easy to get
0: into. It's an amazing subject to explore. Um, don't thank you so much
1: for coming on the Camera Shake podcast and talking to us about macro photography. I thoroughly You're enjoyed. welcome. And I, I think that if anybody has any questions regarding the adventure into macro photography, say you've listened to this and you decide that uh, you want to go down this rabbit hole of, uh, of frustration, and find your way into the the magic eventually send me a note send me an email i'd be more than happy to to help you you know work through any of those moments that uh, happen to be frustrating you because i've been there i've done it and i could uh i could you know i could help you out and of course you've also written a book about Margaret i Potion. have yes um so uh, Macro Photography the Universe at Our Feet is the physical edition is now out of print I've sold through the entire production run uh but you can get a digital copy of that it is available on Amazon um if you want to throw a few more dollars at me personally you can buy it from my website uh and that would be at the same place where I had my previous snowflake book at skycrystals.ca and uh it's an interactive PDF that you can get your hands on the Almost 400 pages, uh, over 80,000 words uh, and tons of pictures and, and diagrams. And I, I, I'm biased, but I think it turned out pretty well. Fantastic. They have it. All the
0: links um, are going to be in the description. So if you're uh, if you're watching on YouTube, then you know, just have a look in the description. Likewise, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, then you'll find all the details and all the links down there. Don, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again at some point. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, folks, that's all for today. There you have it. What a fascinating conversation. I certainly think I've caught the bug and might very well look into photography myself. In fact, I'm pretty sure I will. But before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you like. Check out episode 63 with portrait legend Chris Knight, where we discuss his very own Frankenstein version of a camera. I'm sure you'll love it. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully-fledged video version on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? Well, you should know by now because I keep mentioning it. All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you are on YouTube already, well, get in touch, leave a comment, and remember to hit the like button, ring the bell, and share with your friends. You can help us reach a greater audience all over the world. Once again, thank you for listening and watching and I'll see you again next Thursday.